0: You're listening to the podcast of the com. I had a quick lunch, then I drove off. It was a very bizarre departure from your house. The weather was beautiful. I stopped to call you and you said yes. You were nevertheless optimistic of all love. In this podcast, Blythe and I are very pleased bring you another Jayhawk here. This is uh, Claire Getty, who got her PhD from the University of Kansas and is part of the Grieg Academy Music Therapy Research Center, or GAMET, and Associate Professor of Music Therapy at the Grieg Academy at the University of Bergen in Norway. As a music therapist and a child life specialist, she has extensive clinical experience with children and adults in intensive and long-term care medical settings. Claire has particular interest in exploring the ways in which music therapy may promote emotional approach coping and buffer traumatization in intensive medical contexts. She has conducted research and theoretical work in the area of music therapy as emotional approach coping and as procedural support for invasive medical procedures. Her current research includes evaluating the use of music therapy to improve quality of relation in preterm infant and parent interactions in order to promote optimal neurodevelopmental outcomes and improve parental psychological health. Along with colleagues at Gamut, Claire is also researching the implementation of music therapy in substance use treatment settings in Norway and she has published on the topic of music therapy and harm reduction. Claire has served on the editorial boards of the Journal of Music Therapy, Voices, the World Forum for Music Therapy, and for Music Therapy Perspectives, and has authored journal articles and book chapters on various research methodologies and clinical approaches. She holds her PhD in music education slash music therapy with a minor in health psychology from the University of Kansas. And we were very pleased to speak with Dr. Claire Getty on this edition of the Music Therapy Therapy Research Podcast. In my life, there's no reasonable guy pleased to be joined by our guest uh, joining us, Dr. Claire Getty. And Claire, if you'd start with uh, talking a little bit about your pathway to becoming interested in music therapy research, whether that takes you back to um, your interests when you were uh, in your university days or, or even before that.
1: Sure. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Andrew and Bled. Um, I think my interest um, in research really developed when I was working in clinical practice. And I worked uh, for about eight years in New York City before I moved back to University of Kansas to do my doctorate. And one of the areas where I was working was with children in intensive medical settings. So they were either in the pediatric intensive care unit. Um, I also worked with kids after very severe burn injuries. And um, I noticed that with the processes of music therapy that the kids could actually get into music very naturally, uh, that we could improvise songs together, and then they would just naturally go through this exploration and uh, uh, getting closer to issues that I think were really internal conflicts that they had. And so they naturally sort of played through both with music and with the props that we used in our improvised musical play as a way to sort of work through these conflicts. And I thought that was quite interesting. I remember one case of a little girl who had a very recent diagnosis and her parents had also just recently divorced. And just metaphorically, we went through this improvised song where I supported her improvising on guitar and doing some background vocals. And she just told the story of this butterfly that went out, injured its wings, and it was flying about and uh, was able to lick its wings and become whole and well together and it collected its mother and it collected its father and it went through this process where it became whole and well um, with all of them together again. And I, I thought it was remarkable the adults that were in the room realized that she had the resources inside of herself to sort of get what she needed and make sense of her situation and use it as a resource for coping and healing. And so I was quite curious about that process of children uh, working through conflicts and challenges that they had through music and through play as ways to master some of those and then be able to cope better with the real stressors that they were experiencing in the medical environment.
0: I'm also not certain that there's been a lot of um, folks that have had research in that area so so it's not that you probably read a million papers you know before you actually engaged in working with this uh, this littlest family really but you so you're saying or would it be correct to say that uh, it was your clinical experiences that actually prodded you to want to know more and, and actually delve more into systematic research in in, in that particular area
1: exactly yes um, I've Also, had an experience of a a girl who was very anxious about a nasogastric tube that had to be placed at night. And because she couldn't tolerate the placement of this feeding tube, she couldn't be discharged from the hospital. And um, I went in, I, I also have training as a child life specialist, so I have that cap as well to sort of understand how to prepare children in a developmentally appropriate way for procedures and treatments that they have and also help explain their illness. But going in with her into the sessions, we had a series of improvised sessions together, building rapport and trust. And then she naturally played out through what became a very aggressive um, interaction with a medical play doll who had a nasogastric tube. Um, She sort of went through this cathartic process of approaching her greatest fear, which she expressed through the doll situation Mm of The doll strangulating um, because of the nasogastric tube and dying. And so, through the music, we could support her. She approached her greatest fears. Uh, in this way and actually worked through them productively so that after we got through the musical catharsis and the action that happened for her, then she was in a state where she was more receptive to actually understand some psychoeducation. I could provide her about what the nasogastric tube did and how uh, if you insert it in a certain way, it can cause the gag reflex and sort of playing with her about what the gag reflex is like and how it's actually helpful. And she could then start to understand Uh, the importance of that sort of reflex and that those sensations she had were actually helping her. So um, I really felt after that series of sessions with her that she would not have been as receptive to that psychoeducation if she hadn't gone through the emotional process first of approaching her greatest fear and then working through it. Um, and I talked with some child life specialists and music therapists at the time. I thought this, is, I think it's a synergistic combination where it requires the music therapy yeah. process. It, I couldn't have just gone in um, and talked with her. Uh, and explain the doll and did some medical play. I think for this particular child, she needed the musical occasion to really come closer to those feelings. So yes, I think from clinical practice, I was curious, are there these processes in music therapy that help uh, children and adults alike to approach the greatest fears and work through them musically by uh, approaching those emotions instead of trying to use energy to avoid emotions and by approaching them then be more receptive to have um, sort of accumulate your resources that you have to be able to mobilize them more effectively afterward. Mm -hmm. So that really got me interested in um, researching that more and of course I thought well this would be wonderful to go uh, into a qualitative exploration to really delve into a little bit more systematically than I did in my own clinical reflection on this particular case. But I also knew you can't uh, make these situations happen for people. <laughs> they kind of naturally evolve, and I wouldn't know necessarily clinically when the next time would happen where someone would go into such an important process. So I thought there's got to be some common ground um, that's explaining this process of music, promoting approach to emotions, and actually working through feelings uh towards one's greatest stressor at the time and that um, looking at that process as a way to provide some sort of exposure to it some sort of catharsis and then ideally optimizing one's mobilization of resources thereafter
2: that's fascinating to hear about the process you went through Uh, i'm sorry did you want to expand on that
1: no i i I was just going to say i had to figure out how to translate that to, um, actual research. <laughs> uh, and, and I thought it would be interesting to see if the same sort of thing happens with adults. And so when I worked on my PhD, I started to examine, is there a, a process of emotional approach coping that happens through music therapy? And so I was relying on that construct as I found in the health psychology literature, Annette Stanton and her colleagues, uh, have developed a research related to emotional approach coping, thinking about uh, coping as either uh, being emotion focused um, and problem focused. Those were the two categorizations that are sort of traditionally conceived of. But the problem with that is that emotion focused can be confounded in a lot of the measurement tools with distress and um, it's not cleanly handled there. And instead, Annette Stanton and her colleagues have suggested that the better way to classify coping is through either avoidance-oriented strategies or approach-oriented strategies. So in particular, they're looking at um, emotion-approach-oriented strategies where someone is going into their emotional experience as a way to cope with their uh, stressors. Thank
2: you for describing how you got into music therapy research. I always find that fascinating to hear people's stories, and that clinician-based approach is something that um, I can relate to. In your current position, what have been the challenges with starting up a line of research?
1: I'd say um, the, maybe the current challenges are are matching one's sort of research line with um, the research lines of the interdisciplinary group one works with, I'm in a unique situation, which is part of the reason which attracted me over to Norway, where I currently am, um, is that at Gamut, the Grieg Academy Music Therapy Research Center, we have music therapy researchers who actually herald from different uh, professions and backgrounds. And so as Brynjolf Stig has described music therapy as a discipline, it's really studying music therapy, and um, it can be done from different uh, disciplines. So for example, we have psychologists um, on our group, biostatistician, um, methodologists, and these individuals have diverse background knowledge that helps really enhance our uh, research portfolio and the abilities we have for conducting high quality research. Um, So coming into this context a year and a half ago, as I did, I had certain areas that I was quite interested in in um, studying and researching and continuing the line of looking at emotional approach coping and music therapy. And um, then there were also some interests here in this cultural environment. And so we we discussed for a while what would be the best strategies to start with. Um, also, given that I'm learning the language of Norwegian here, and so I have to sort of think about my current research efforts and maximize my abilities, knowing that I have limitation in language. So we've been looking at um, collaborations with Wutzia Bialaninik is one of our uh, researchers here, and she's a psychologist who's worked a lot with uh, families of uh, premature infants. So she's looked at parental perceptions of premature infants. Um, of of these parents towards their premature infants. And we have, uh, together with Christian Gold and Hannah Cecilia Brarud, who's from a neighboring institution here, we've created a protocol for a longitudinal study of the use of music therapy, not just in the NICU, which has been done, but also following uh, those dyads and um, the families into the home environment and providing long-term interaction across six months with them to try to see if we can improve quality of relation from the time that the infant is first in the NICU and the parent is learning how to interact in a way that promotes the infant's self-regulation, moving that uh, all the way into the home environment where the infant is is growing and developing uh, with individualized trajectories, and then we consult to the parent to to show them how they might use music therapy as a way to continue supporting that bond and the developmental outcomes in the infant, but contribute to the parent-infant relation.
0: My first question is whether um, you have learned how to say phenomenological in Norwegian or not, because I have to assume that's got to be a hard one.
1: I can barely (laughs) say it in English. So (laughs) (laughs) when I presented Mm. on that before, it's difficult in English. Um, No. And actually, since right now, a lot of our publications and our proposals were writing in English, I'm probably not writing the Norwegian as much as I should. Oh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh i so my real question then uh, since i since um listening to those current research interests i'm wondering since you gave us your current research research interests and this team that you're working with um how do you evaluate uh, music therapy research as a whole as compared to research with some of the different areas of the the people that you're working with so you know how do you how do you compare and contrast music therapy research compared to some of these other um disciplines or professions
1: i think uh I am challenged by having interdisciplinary colleagues uh, and working with team science because, uh, challenge in a good way because they come with uh, different perspectives. So my colleague Wuzia and uh, perhaps Hannah as well have a lot of experience with observational studies and longi- very long, long-term ten-year longitudinal studies, uh, which we don't really do in music therapy uh, very much. So. I think, and they may not be as familiar um, with interventional studies. So we've had some interesting discussions where I think strengths are coming from these different areas and what we focus on when we're developing a protocol uh is a little bit different. And because of that, I think they complement each other very well. And we end up with a very strong study because it's being conceived of by a a whole team with these different backgrounds and different skills. And I I see this in contrast to research I've done before where I spent quite a long time conceiving it and tried to be very thorough and looked at previous um, designs and the research and really tried to make sure I was theoretically sound and how I was developing the study uh, because that's quite important to me and then it's still at a whole different level now when I have these colleagues here who have such competence and we can have these conversations that uh, point out flaws or areas that I was blind to that when you're a single researcher trying to conceive of this, even drawing it from your own clinical practice, I think you have blinders necessarily because you're just one perspective. So perhaps that's what I've learned the most is that it's really important, I think, for our field of music therapy to continue working in an interdisciplinary style as we design music therapy interventional studies, we still have a team um, that's working with us who can really consult to help us improve methodology our statistical analysis, um, help with the reporting of the study to make sure that we're following all the guidelines we can for transparency. Um, that helps as we develop the theoretical rationale for the, st- the study and then helps us think through as we're pairing an intervention to the theoretical rationale too to make sure that that is a, a sound um, and cohesive relationship.
2: We all can probably agree that no research study is perfect. However, in, in listening to you describe about getting multiple perspectives and learning about some of the blinders that you might have had in your own research, I'm going to have to say that you're one of the authors that I go to in my research class to show students a really clear example of research methodology, research reporting. So I thank you for that. And I wanted to know if there's any publications that you would like to highlight or discuss of your own.
1: Um, thank you. I... I think that when I try to write most of things that I write, I try to be clear at least. Um, if I can't be terribly profound at <laughs> all times or uh, remember all the details that I should, at least I can be clear to articulate that. And I definitely appreciate that when I'm reviewing other research for the journals that I'm on the editorial boards for. And I think that clarity and transparency is really important for us too as we, as a profession, as we continue to publish. Um, I think aside from maybe those interventional studies in the JMT in 2011, 2013 that had to do with emotional approach coping, um, I'm also interested in getting more dialogue with clinicians who, who engage in procedural support. Um, that's an area that I think clinicians are really on the forefront of developing. Understanding and awareness, and even developing their own theoretical frameworks for this type of work. And I'm really referring more to intensive. Uh, Painful, anxiety-provoking procedures. For example, when people have had severe burden injuries and they're going through debridement or cleaning of the wounds, it's something that becomes very complex because if the individual wasn't traumatized by the injury initially, um, they can sometimes, especially we see this in children, become traumatized by the treatment itself. And so you're dealing with very complex pain and anxiety reactions and really traumatic uh, reactions in some cases when you're working with people. So it's not a simple needle stick procedure where you can and alternately engage someone's attention for a moment um, it's potentially an hour to an hour and a half in some cases uh, excruciating experience for a child or an adult who has um, already learned that it's excruciating and terrifying um, and it's something that requires a whole other level of um, awareness and presence and adaptability on the part of the therapist so in um 2012, I published in the Nordic Journal of Music Therapy an article that was based on a qualitative document analysis of everything that I could find in writing about music therapy for procedural or support for invasive procedures um, in the music therapy literature, and then I analyzed section by section, word by word, um, all the sort of writing that related to that concept um, from those included studies, and from that information, I tried to create um, sort of a catalog of all the the concepts that were arising, that people were describing, and then relate them all to each other in the model, sort of a a working draft of a model of procedural support. So my hope was that in that philosophical exercise, that it was maybe moving towards developing some theory in this area. But again, I don't want to be limited to just the confines of how I conceive this information. So um, I was hoping that this model could then be uh, reflected upon critically by other people who do this type of work and that it could be a work in progress and others could contribute to it. Mm-hmm. So um, my hope was that there would be some ongoing dialogue with the music therapists who are involved in these sort of um, invasive procedure support uh, that we could really look at some of the constructs and play with them over time and see if this adequately defines, what's going on and in particular there's a process that I called reflexivity uh, which was the music therapist responsive, uh, being responsive to the client and the demands of the situation and modifying along with the collaboration from the client um, elements that were going on in the moment so it was sort of this process of um, reflecting upon what was going on and modifying at the same time as an ongoing unfolding process of assessment and treatment intervention. And that element, I feel, is necessary. I I don't feel like you can go in as a music therapist and say, I'm going to provide alternate um, engagement and stick to that the entire time um, for this sort of really intense procedure. I think one has to be um, modifying uh, and, and be relational to the patient as the needs change over time. So that's an element that one could look at through research to see if we do procedural support with reflexivity, is that necessary or do we get the same outcomes or the same um client experience if we remove that reflexivity? So I'm interested in both in looking at elements of the model um theoretically as well as through research, but then also what I feel is often missing or underrepresented in the uh American literature is the client's experience of music therapy at a richer level. We often do patient satisfaction surveys, uh, but I feel like that's more from sort of a consumer standpoint. We don't have a huge amount of qual- really rich qualitative data about uh, client perceptions of music therapy. Often it's sort of a cursory questionnaire at the end of a research study, but uh, we don't go as much into depth to really understand, are are the people benefiting from music therapy in the same ways that the outside observer, the outside intervener feels they are, or is there something else that's going on that we're not aware of?
0: Um the uh, the discussion that you just sort of laid out is really rich. There's a lot of uh, ideas and everything that, that it's, it's making my head spin, too. And I'm wondering if we could just back up to what you started that, um, that uh, discussion with, which was when you're talking about trying to write clearly. And, and I'm wondering if you could translate some of that into uh, some advice for people who want to prepare a manuscript, who want to actually get some of their... Their ideas for research down on paper. Um, from from your perspective as a researcher and a reviewer, um, given that given that you've got such uh, like I said richness of thought and 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 diversity of ideas and everything, I mean, you know the 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 blank page can sometimes be really daunting to to a lot of us, much less somebody who's just trying to do it for the first couple times, you know post-thesis mm-hmm. or post-dissertation. So I'm wondering uh, what do you uh, tell students or, or what would you like to tell um, people who are interested in starting a manuscript up?
1: Um, there are a couple different angles to this. I think just on a more pragmatic level, one can follow the intervention reporting guidelines, uh, consort guidelines and uh, Prisma statement for men analysis. Um, and so forth to, to get guidelines for how to discuss and write up the certain aspects of a study so that you're not forgetting elements of it. Um, I think I've learned the most from, I forget who even challenged me this, from someone earlier who, who was basically saying, like, you should be able to, in one page, state all the most essential elements that you need. And that'll be so much stronger than 30 pages of just endlessly trailing on and going on tangents. Um, so I think I try to, to be concise, but also be very clear. And so when I'm reading back through my writing, I try to challenge myself to say, would other people understand this clearly is, is everything sort of leading in to the next part, um, in a, in a logical way or a way that almost builds a narrative, even if you're, if you're writing up a, report of a randomized controlled trial, I almost feel like you can approach that as if it's a narrative. You're telling a story of someone of what study you did, <laughs> so you have to tell the story of where it came from and how um, perhaps why it's important, um, maybe how it evolved during the time, exactly what you did, uh, what were the implications, what did you learn from it, what could be improved for next time. But all of that should be cohesively told so that it's a tool for other people. Um, And we can only know what we see from someone's write up. So they might have had an awesome study that met all the criteria we could hope for. But then if they've written it up in a way that's obscured that then lost the value of of the work. So I think the written word has a lot of power. um, But there's also a lot of power in being clear and concise. Sometimes we don't need all of the um, extra background story on things.
2: And I think that uh, the reader or the listeners can see that in many of your articles that you've written, how clear and concise they are. Do you have any overall advice for new researchers in music therapy?
1: I would hope that they follow the questions that arise from practice. I I think it's really important for music therapy researchers uh, to be strong clinicians and have adequate amount of practice experience so that they really are searching after and exploring questions that are pertinent, um, to the clients that we serve and to themselves as music therapists and are really grounded in reality and not, um, sort of esoteric exercises, I guess. So there's plenty of fodder for research in in clinical practice. So I, I invite new researchers to really think about what fascinates them the most, uh, those sort of unsolved questions that they have, and then let that be the basis to try to really stay close to that as they continue to develop their research. Because um, I think that helps sustain them through all of the challenges that challenges are really a part of the research process. I used to joke right after my PhD when I was presenting on the research that no one told us that research was a pain in the butt. <laughs> I think right. everyone right. thinks it's a, a wonderful process and um, a higher goal and something that we should all strive for improving and engaging in. And I, I don't hear very many people saying how excruciating it can be at <laughs> Points uh, and a lot of work it can be, but um, it's very rewarding. But one has to have that um, ability to sustain oneself. And I think when you stay tied to the research questions that are uh, clinically meaningful to you and that you've seen in practice, you've seen the stories, you've seen something working and you're curious about it, I think that can really sustain people through it. And then again, as I've mentioned before, I uh, I really believe it's important to seek interdisciplinary teams when you're doing your research to have a broader perspective on what you're doing and, and a sort of critical frame to reevaluate and really make sure that what you're doing makes sense and is uh, um, hanging together well. I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, that just makes me think of just one quick follow-up. Since you are uh, also a professor and and um, and so. Uh, is teaching about research. Do you try to bring in that angle where you talk about the, <laughs> you know, to use your word, the excruciating nature of it sometimes? Because, uh, you know, t- because th- as- especially if with those students that don't have clinical experience, uh, they can't go out and find an, an interdisciplinary team, but they come to you and they're just thinking, I will do, I'll do whatever. I, I don't care. I just want to be involved in, and then they just say research really sort of broadly. I just help me do something with research. I, th- I th- It's cool. It sounds nice. It's." Something I'd like to tell my parents (laughs) that I'm doing, you know, productively when I go back on vacation or something like that. But uh, is there something uh, in particular about teaching research that you try to get across uh, in particular to your students?
1: I think I try to get them to understand that that process of inquiry is something that we do naturally in clinical practice, too. Um, hopefully, (laughs) that as one is engaging in music with someone, you're sort of thinking about it, you're experiencing it, you're reflecting on your own experience of it, what it might be like for your clients, maybe you dialogue about it afterwards, or you listen to recordings of the session, you think about it. I don't feel like the two are, are removed from each other at all. And so my main goal is to make students feel like they can access research literature and they can engage with it. Um, I don't want them to feel intimidated to, to, to go access a uh, journal and not know how to look at the results section or to make sense of the methods or something. I want them to have the basic tools so that they feel empowered to go engage with it and question it and say, hmm, I wonder why they didn't design it in this way or wonder why they didn't look at this element, because I feel that inquiry... Um, process is part of how we learn more about what we're doing in practice and what helps us become better clinicians too. If we just sort of shut off our brains and go on autopilot in practice, uh, we stay at a certain level and we're missing a lot of um, potential, I think, potential with the client, potential with the, the growth of therapy and with the therapist's own growth as well. So that's my goal is to, to make the students see that Any process of inquiry that you do in in practice naturally extends into the research. It's a different discipline, and you approach it uh, more systematically and with rigor um, and with intentionality. But I I think that there's uh, consistency between those processes, between practice and research.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And with that, do you have
2: any advice for clinicians who have never done research and clinician-based research? What are your thoughts on that?
1: I'd say... If possible, if there's a way to partner with people at their institution, um, that can bring a little more visibility to music therapy uh, because if you're trying to partner with a psychologist or doctor or uh, perhaps even administrator, uh, someone else who has a different area of, of competence, but as the therapist starts to describe what's going on in therapy and what they'd like to look at, that can raise awareness for the other individuals as to the value of music therapy and what it's actually doing and make them curious about the processes that are involved in music therapy and the outcomes as well. So, Ideally, you could partner with someone at your institution who has some knowledge of research or experience with it as well and can um, help you improve the quality of the the research that you're doing. And if that doesn't work, then potentially there'd be ways to partner with other uh, research mentors. I know that's one topic that we're hoping in um, AMTA to, to to formulate some process for mentorship in the area of research development um, or with universities or something where there's a sort of a team approach to developing research. But I I would hate for someone to be interested in it and not have support locally at their institution and then sort of give up on the ability um, to do it. I think there are ways to be involved and to bring research project forward um, in a team sort of environment.
0: Right, with that, uh, with that core idea of of, I'm just doing this as a process of inquiry. This will be, we'll have some better client outcomes, or, you know, there's things that we can do to make our clinical working together more smoothly, and you know, with that, with that, in the back of the mind, I'll make the institution that I work for better. Um, by engaging in the research too so uh, it's been a fascinating discussion and uh, and and uh, thanks very much for for talking about your research in the past with us and then also good luck with uh, all of your research prospects in the future as well Claire
1: thank you very much I it's been a you. pleasure
0: I've begun to dwell in if if music for this podcast I is R. Stevie Moore. From the album Live on WFM News, Almost Live with Jim Price, recorded January 16th, 1980. And it's called Norway. You're listening to the podcast associated with the Music Therapy Research Blog, found at musictherapyresearchblog.com. Your hosts are Dr. Blythe Lagasse and Dr. Andrew Knight, Music Therapy faculty members at Colorado State University. If you enjoy the podcast, please let us know by heading to iTunes and submitting a review and a rating. It only takes a minute and helps our visibility on the iTunes page tremendously. Thanks in advance.